Um, so the talk tonight is about doubt, <clears throat> one of the five mental hindrances that the Buddha talked about. And um, yeah, I decided to uh, give a talk on it because I I realize it's it's more complex, you know, in its role in our practice than I had originally sort of imagined it <coughs> when I first heard about the five hindrances, um, you know, desire and and restlessness and worry, aversion, uh, sloth and torpor, you know, things like desire and aversion felt really powerful and doubt, yeah, 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 you know, kind of, <coughs> I had a doubt. I don't think that's a problem here. So something like that, and and I think I haven't given it the the sort of respect that um, that I now have for it. Um, so I'll talk a little bit uh, just as a review about the five hindrances. Um, so these are considered um, mental factors. So these are factors of the mind that hinder our ability to be present and to be present in a wise way. So I'll name them again. So desire, (coughs) aversion, restlessness and worry, sleepiness and dullness, and then the final one is doubt. And these are universal. We We all have the experiences of the hindrances. And part of what we're doing as we sit here in our formal meditation is coming to know their character, coming to know their force in our mind. And, you know, it's true that until we really investigate them, until we understand them, they will push us around, you know, whether it's on the cushion or whether it's in our daily life. But the beautiful thing is that they are visitors to the mind. They're just visitors. Um, the, the Pali word for hindrances is nivarana, which means coverings. So they're seen as like coverings to the clarity and radiance of the mind, which we all have also. So the, the Buddha, these are his words, the mind is by nature radiant, it's shining, It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. So what makes a hindrance a hindrance is how it hinders attention. So this is a really important point. Hindrances are not in and of themselves a problem. They're a problem because they knock off our mindfulness. We stop our mindfulness in the presence of hindrances. So that's just, that's just really important because otherwise we can start to make the hindrances like this insufferable, intractable, intractable problem, right? Um, and we need to really shift the view. When we can deepen mindfulness enough, steady mindfulness enough, hindrances are not a problem. They can come and they go as they will. So the Buddha, with all his useful, very useful similes, he offers a a water simile for each of of the hindrances, which I'd just like to go over briefly. So 
Um, he says, you know, if we have a pot of water, that's our starting place. Um, you know, well, the starting place is actually is just the acknowledgement that the that the mind is pure, right? The mind is pure, uh, like pure water. So, if we have a pot of water, um, and that water is colored like the color of red. Um, that can be seen as like sensual desire. If I'm looking into this water that's red, um, it won't reflect me accurately. It won't reflect my face accurately. It will give me a rosy hue. I may look more attractive than I actually am with that rosy hue. right? So, so that's the nature of the mind. It's like looking through rose-colored glasses when it's in the state of desire. Objects look more attractive than they inherently are, than they can inherently satisfy. So there's a delusion um, with this hindrance of sensual desire. So aversion, and these are sort of umbrella terms, like a lot, hatred falls under aversion, anger falls under aversion. So there's a lot of different qualities of mind that fall under these categories. In aversion, the water is boiling. Right? So again, the reflection can't be clearly seen. And, and in the state of boiling, in the, you know, we understand this right? in, a, in a mind that's rageful or angry, right? and it also has the possibility of just spilling out and injuring with its heat. So that's, that's the um, sort of quality of aversion uh, and, and the disguise that it, it has. Sleepiness and dullness... Um, sometimes translated as sloth or torpor. You know, and we can just know this as all, all forms of sort of boredom and laziness and depression. You know, when the mind is heavy and the body is heavy, um, there's just no movement. So in this case, the, the water is thick with algae. And restlessness and worry... Uh, the water is whipped up by the wind. Um, and I really love this, you know, someone who kind of really works with anxiety a lot, just this quality of, you know, when there's this low-level anxiety, you know, it's like a wave will come up with a particular thought and it will subside, but then another thought and a wave of anxiety will come up again. So these sort of waves on the surface, the mind won't settle. So this is this sort of simile for restlessness and worry. And doubt, the last one, the water is completely dark and muddy and, of course, cannot reflect anything. And the Buddha adds one more thing to the simile of dark. He says the figure looking into the dark water is also in a completely dark room. So any, any way that that figure turns he or she doesn't know which way to go because it all looks the same. It's all dark. It's a sort of a state of confusion and disorientation, not knowing if this direction will take me to a better place or this direction will take... And so we get paralyzed. We're sort of in a, in a standstill. So we may recognize that kind of mind in our practice also. So this quality of dark water. This is what the Buddha said... <clears throat> When, when one's mind is possessed by doubt, overpowered by doubt, then one cannot properly see the escape from doubt 
uh, which has arisen, then one does not properly understand one's own welfare, nor that of another, nor that of both. So it's hard to even feel what's skillful and what's not skillful in a state of doubt. What will be wholesome, what will, what will be unwholesome. And just going more specifically into doubt, it's also been compared to, to quicksand in how it, more than any of the other hindrances, it has a power to suck us in in a way that we live in the thoughts, we believe the thoughts that are coming up with doubt. <clears throat> so I think about this a lot, this quality of mind of being sort of absorbed into a rabbit hole, you know, just um, kind of lost in, a, in that quicksand. It feels so apropos. And I've had, I'll give, just give an example of self-doubt because I think self-doubt is particular, uh, has in particular, that quicksand quality. Um, so in my in my teaching role at McAllister, I always feel a little bit on an edge. You know, it's sort of... Um, and sometimes when a, a class doesn't go well, it kind of leaves a taste. We all know this, right? We all know this experience when we're kind of left with some feeling of not having done something quite well or, or whatever. Um, but I, I've noticed... It doesn't end there. It's like that whole day, it's like I'm wearing a shroud, I'm wearing a winter coat, and I just feel this sort of withering energy. And I have to trace my mind back and realize, oh, that triggered that triggered some old just self-doubt, some old stories of unworthiness, just stuff that's under the surface. So doubt... Self-doubt, skeptical doubt, all the forms of doubt that the Buddha talked about has the um, character of drawing the other, other hindrances in along. So that's that sort of quicksand quality where, and again, it's like, if so now, you know, having gone through this so many times, I'm really mindful. I really use mindful as a friend when I'm, I'm leaving that classroom that, that just didn't go well. I'm feeling that in my body. I'm feeling that in my heart. But I don't want to be caught in that delusion, that rabbit hole that's not no longer even connected to what happened in the room, right? So I'm really there. And instead of, you know, I, I listen to the words that might kind of move through my mind. I, I feel the sensations in the body. But I'm resting in the mindfulness, like I am being aware of doubt as an activity. I know doubt has kicked in, and I'm naming it. And as best I can, I'm going to stay with it and just keep being alert, watching this old, ancient weather pattern, you know, this activity of doubt. And, and just to make one other point, this isn't saying anything about my capacity in the classroom, right? <laughs> this isn't making. This isn't saying whether my perceptions of having done a good job or a bad job are accurate or inaccurate. That's not the point. The point is how my perceptions, my beliefs, my not seeing the presence of doubt takes mindfulness away, and I'm lost. So that's the point, and that's the point that the Buddha makes about the importance of looking at self-doubt. 
Uh, Emily Dickinson has a poem. <clears throat> it's a longer poem, but there's one line I love. She says, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up. There's a pain so utter it swallows substance up. A friend of mine was recently on a retreat with uh, Venerable Analeo, a, a monk in, the, in this tradition, early Buddhism, Theravada, um, who's a scholar and who I deeply respect. And, but she was sharing, in the context of the retreat, she was sharing just the confusion of her mind, you know, just feeling just lost in the confusion of her mind. And it was difficult. I could, you know, in her telling me it was difficult for her to share this. And what he said, <clears throat> what he said in response to her, um, I just lost my place. He said, the knowing mind is never confused. And there was a, yes, oh, I'll speak up, yes. So I couldn't hear that. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said, the knowing mind is never confused. And just like right there, just like refuge. The knowing mind is a refuge, you know. So, so we can keep reminding ourselves, keep noticing how the mind that knows doubt, the mind that knows anger, the mind that knows confusion is not angry, is not confused, is not doubtful. So just coming to know this aspect of the mind that we can rest in. realizing too, you know, as a way to help us not demonize these states of mind is, you know, the Buddha said the Buddha said dukkha needs to be understood he didn't say dukkha needs to be gotten rid of right, dukkha needs to be understood, suffering needs to be understood so we can hold that wisdom when anger comes up we don't need to get rid of anger. In fact, it's a wrong impulse. It's like, it's like putting aversion onto a, an already difficult state of mind. We need to get curious about anger. And, and we can't bypass this piece in our path, right? We, we can't bypass it. So it's like, yeah, just using the opportunity. This is what's showing up. Just use the opportunity instead of fearing it. So I, I really appreciated in the poem that read, uh, Mark read the, the nun, I, I don't remember her name, but when she was talking about awareness or mindfulness as a ballast. And... Um, I looked it up, uh, I kind of vaguely knew what it was, but I looked it up and a ballast is heavy material such as gravel, sand, iron, or lead placed low in a vessel to improve stability. So when I think of like a boat kind of weighted, you know, for stability, like that ballast, uh, that mindfulness that we can grow 
And it's a beautiful metaphor, you know, with the, with the waves of life. If we have strength in that ballast, that boat can be sturdy. You know, if we're in a, a boat that isn't like that, you know, a little wave can be enough just to tip us over. So I, I really appreciate that image, you know, that weighted center of mindfulness. So um, the Buddha said to be aware of three kinds of doubt that might be interfering with your practice. Um, He said, and he he distinguished a particular, he said skeptical doubt. Those were his words, skeptical doubt, which, which I'll define a little bit later. But he said doubt about the teachings, doubt about ourselves and our capacity to learn the teachings, to practice, and doubt about the teacher. So those are three, three sort of categories of doubt that he talked about. <clears throat> One thing that has always sort of given me confidence in, in this tradition um, is, is the uh, valuing of investigation. And, you know, teachers are pointers, but we really need to learn for ourselves. You know, and we have to learn for ourselves. And so, it, it, you know, it's not based on anything that we're not seeing. You know? So this quality of investigation is central. And doubt is central to investigation, really, right? We, we, we have concerns. This right. So there are kinds of doubt that are useful because they, they, put, they present questions that lead us forward that get us interested, and then we find the answers. So that kind of doubt is crucial, right? But um, there's different kinds of doubts. Um, The Buddha uh, famously said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. um, The meditation center, uh, Common Ground in Minneapolis, it was originally a, a old diner, kind of a this wonderful 50s greasy spoon diner that had a giant hamburger man on the roof. And he was huge. I mean, it was huge. And he had, he had a hand up and another hand on his belly. And in neon lights, it said shakes, fries, burgers. You know, and um, we didn't know what to do with the hamburger man <laughs> because it was so hard to dismantle. You know, it was, it was like so many problems with this hamburger man. <laughs> Someone suggested, well, maybe we can configure him slightly into a Buddha and, and we can write, come and see on his belly, come and see. Yeah. That didn't work out, you know. <laughs> it's, it's now in a museum in North Dakota somewhere or something like that. But, mm-hmm. So the Buddha said that skeptical doubt asks the kind of questions that don't lead anywhere, uh, that are maybe unanswerable, and that circle around themselves. You know, this is this is a papancha. You know, conceptual proliferation, not very very distant from our lived reality, kind of has this whipped up, whipped up um, quality. So the Buddha refused to answer questions like, does the world have a beginning or not? Does God exist or not? 
Does the soul die or not? Um, and I think it, it's not that he necessarily dismissed those questions, but he just said they're the wrong questions. They're not the urgent questions that we need to be asking. And he, he compared that to uh, you know, a soldier being shot with multiple arrows and you know, is mortally wounded, and, but and the soldier refuses to go to the hospital until he knows exactly who shot him, what were the arrows, where did that guy get the arrow, you know, what, whatever it is, is sort of, and so that's a kind of madness in terms of what we're faced with. So I think that was mostly the, the Buddhist perspective on that. You know, and that the questions, of course, are, you know, what we ask here. What, what is the cause to our suffering? What are the forces that will end our suffering? Or what is the knowledge, the wisdom that will bring it to an end? And the, the danger, too, of certain lines of questioning, you know, maybe about free will, maybe, you know, whatever it is that we might bring to the practice... It's, it's not that those questions are, you know, inherently a problem, but if they distract us, if they fragment the mind, if they keep us from getting concentrated, <laughs> then we'll be working on limited information and we won't progress on the path because we kind of got stopped here with these questions. Yes. I, I'm stopped here with the question. With yeah. The question that I'm coming up. And I'm not fully aware of the quality of this question, too. Okay. Uh, what are what what are, what are the qualities of a good doubt versus a skeptical? Yeah. Let me let me keep going because it might answer your question. And I think it's actually not obvious. I think it's you, it's a good question that you're asking. And I have the same questions, but, but, but I think, and I'll just say this briefly, I think it's to look at the quality of the mind when it's sort of obsessed with those questions. Does it just loop on itself? Does it go nowhere? And we can taste that it's unwholesome. We can taste we're not learning anything. You know, so it's just sort of being sensitive to, to what's happening when those questions are asked. That, that's one thing that that we can look at. So, um, so what does doubt look like? <clears throat> this kind of skeptical doubt. And this is, this is the Buddha's description. He says, um, <clears throat> and I'll just, use, I'll just use the he pronoun that he uses here. He says, a man traveling through a desert, aware that travelers may be plundered or killed by robbers, will, at the mere sound of a twig or a bird, become anxious and fearful, thinking, the robbers have come. He will go a few steps, and then out of fear he will stop, and continue in such a manner all the way, or he may even turn back, stopping more frequently than walking. Only with toil and difficulty will he reach a place of safety, or he may not even reach it at all. Thus, as the traveler in the desert is uncertain whether robbers are there or not, he produces in his mind again and again a state of wavering vacillation, a lack of decision, a state of anxiety, 
and thus he creates in himself an obstacle for reaching the safe ground of sanctity. In that way, skeptical doubt is like traveling in a desert. So if, you know, in those moments of paralysis, you know, we, we all recognize that, and that, you know, it, where the mind isn't nimble anymore, it's frozen with fear and uncertainty, I think I think just in in the naming of doubt that can be that can just be useful in that moment. And I think despair. I think despair too can grow out of doubt. Buddha said something that's really uh, powerful for me. He says dukkha or suffering ripens in two ways, either as continuing the round of rebirth or in search. I'll just read that one more time. Dukkha ripens in two ways, either as continuing the round of rebirth or in search. So the character of skeptical doubt, as I briefly mentioned, is that the thoughts loop in on themselves. This is the, the state of papancha. And the state of papancha, this sort of conceptual proliferation, um, is often accompanied by like strong emotion. Usually what, what propels that whipping is there's some fear or there's some, some strong emotion, and there's also a strong sense of self that can be wrapped up in that. So it has those qualities Yeah, and, and this happens all the time, these papanchas. Like, like I realize, you know, so, you know, whether I'm teaching in McAllister or even here, like, you know, if, if Corey rolled his eyes, you know, as I'm speaking, and he's rolling his eyes, someone else starts snoring, someone else walks out of the room, right? There's like, there's like a whole thing that's going to happen, right? <laughs> there's like a whole, like, you know. And again, mindfulness is our friend. We, we, can, just, we can just notice. We can just notice because um, if we don't notice, we, you know, we will fall into that habit. You know, oh, I'm unworthy. Oh, why, why am I teaching here? Why should just be dancing? Why, you know, the whole, the whole world that will just kind of bleed out of that moment. So that's a papancha. It's also there's an analogy of a torch with a fire, you know, a fire at the end. If you spin it, right? If you spin it. It appears to be a solid circle, so a papanchas appear more real, but they're actually empty. A cat chasing its tail. Mark and I were watching our cat there on our blue carpet chasing its tail. I thought, oh, that's a papancha. And skeptical doubt, you know, and I think we can relate relate this to the word, you know, a skeptic can also have an association of kind of a lack of openness, where we're sort of fixed in our ideas. And, and maybe some of those ideas, those beliefs that we really cherish, they can feel core to who we are. And when different ideas threaten that, you know, threaten that worldview, you know, it can be really painful, and we can be really defended against that. 
So that can be happening sometimes, just this, a sense of hardness, attachment to one's views. And I think, I think our practice, um, our practice really uproots that, you know, as I, you know, I feel like as we, as we really settle and we really pay attention, we realize how much we don't have the whole story, you know, we like, like it really cultivates humility, our practice, and uh, yeah, I, I love the, the Zen urging to say, maybe not so, maybe not so. Um, there's a nice quote from Bertrand Russell. He says, the whole, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubts. <laughs> So we can explore this lack of openness, which we, which appears for all of us at different times. You know, we all have this when we're, when we're married to a view, when we think our perception of how things are are the right one. Um, we can feel that hardness of the ego just solidifying the hardness that's in the body. You know, sometimes when Mark and I might be in a tit, right? We're in an argument, and and. Um, and I, I feel, I, yeah, I just feel like this. How can you not have the same perception I have? How can you see it differently? You know, there's, and there's a hardness, and I'll be talking at him with this hardness, and then I'll see his jaw relax, and I'll see his eyes soften. And I realize he's having a hard time because he's softening. You know, he's like softening, he's practicing. <laughs> and, and it's beautiful because it reminds me to practice too. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Relax, you know, <laughs> open. So that rejection of new ideas can also stop us in our tracks. <clears throat> I want to read a, a paragraph by Norman uh, Fisher. He's a Zen abbot where he's talking about this openness and the, the power and necessity of listening. He says, to truly listen is to shed as much as possible all of your protective mechanisms, at least for the time of listening. To listen is to be willing to simply be present with what you hear without trying to figure it out or control it. To listen is to be receptive. To do that, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be aware of accepting and accepting of your preconceptions, desires, and delusions, all that prevents you from listening. But you also have to be willing to put these preconceptions, desires, and delusions aside so that you can hear what the speaker is saying for what it is, because truly listening requires that you do this. Listening is dangerous. It might cause you to hear something you don't like, to consider its validity, and to think something you never thought before, or to feel something you never felt before and perhaps never wanted to feel. This feeling might make something happen within you that never happened before. This is the risk of listening. 
but listening, however dangerous, is a necessity. If you want to stay open to life and to change, you have to listen. To listen is to accord respect. When your mind is occupied, usually unconsciously, with your own thoughts, plans, strategies, and defenses, you are not listening. And when you are not listening, you are not according respect. The speaker knows this and reacts accordingly. I think sometimes this is the quality of mind and listening that we need to bring to the body, letting go of all ideas of what we think the body is. And it's, it's beautiful to me, this invitation, just to listen, just to attend, you know. I don't need to make anything be there. I don't need to make it be pleasant. I don't need to, you know, whatever it is, I can just attend, you know, wide open, that beginner's mind. And just, I'll just add one more note, and I, I alluded to it earlier, um, just about self-doubt, you know, this, this um, yeah, just this difficulty that we can bring to our practice when we, when we just feel ourselves unworthy, or, you know, just this sort of complication of things that we can bring to the practice when we look around the room and have imaginations about how everyone else is and what their practice is like and I'm just, uh, you know, whatever that voice is and you know, we can just really bring a lot of compassion to that voice but I just want to offer the encouragement that you know, as we practice, you know, as we connect and sustain this Vitaka Vichara that Mark was talking about you know, a different reality emerges and it pokes holes in those old beliefs that are based in self-view, without even uh, even us intending to do that. You know, our practice will do that. So when that self-doubt arises, I think it's really important to name it because it can be an obstacle. It can wither us and keep us from going forward. So we say, I see you, old friend, right? Old friend, I see you, and I'm going to continue. And, and just in helping us kind of move forward when self-doubt arises, I find it useful several things is to note the unpleasant quality of it, like unpleasant, uh, which in a way makes it a little less personal. This is just unpleasant. And this is just intensity of feeling. It's intensity of feeling and it's deeply unpleasant. And I'm not in any hurry. That helps too. Like, no hurry. 
deep patience. There's the, the story most of us are acquainted with, you know, the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, so it's a story that, you know, Siddhartha Gotama, you know, I'm sure that he felt the ripeness of his mind, you know, when he decided to sit at the base of the Bodhi tree and, and just resolve, I'm not going to leave here until this heart is fully released, you know. So he must have, he must have really felt that this was, this was, you know, coming to be the time, you know, and, and just the power of that determination is so, so beautiful to me. And all the hindrances arose, right? The hindrances, we, we talk about Mara, sort of the demon of ignorance, you know, this personification of, of ignorance. Um, all, the, all the hindrances visited him. Um, but the last and most powerful uh, hindrance was, was the hindrance of doubt. You know, in, in his mind arose the question, who do you think you are? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, with all that he did, all his aesthetic practices, all his, you know, wholehearted work, and that those words, who do you think you are to have such an aspiration, you know, that that would come up for him. So it, so the Buddha, he touched the earth, he called <laughs> this makes me cry. <laughs> he called on the power of the earth. Yeah. So in <clears throat> in terms of doubt, <coughs> excuse me, doubt in the teacher. You know, I think I think we can go back to the Ehipasiko, the come and see invitation. Um, you know, uh, and and just to just to take care. You know, our teachers need to be just good enough, right? They just need to point. <laughs> and and I, you know, I think it's more important that we're that we're good students. And um, and and just like. Yeah, there's just, you know, the world of power and authority that we can give away. We can give it away to our thoughts. You know what I mean? Like, we can give our thoughts so much authority. We can give things, that we can give teachers our power and our, our authority. So, you know, there's just something about, you know, being wide open, learning what we can learn, wherever we can learn it, but, you know, having that responsibility, that we carry that responsibility within ourselves. <clears throat> There's a nice story about um, Ajahn Sumedho when he uh, was at the monastery studying with Ajahn Chah. This is the Thai forest tradition. We Mark talk read from Ajahn Chah's uh, speaking last night. Um, but this story is told by um, Ajahn Sumedho's brother monk Amaro, uh, Ajahn Amaro. And he says, um, uh, Ajahn Sumedho started out life at Ajahn Chah's monastery as a very zealous, hyper-keen monk. He was convinced that Ajahn Chah was the greatest Dharma teacher and the most enlightened master. 
But over time, he noticed flaws in Ajahn Chah, <clears throat> such as smoking, gaining weight, talking with people instead of meditating. He chided the Dharma teacher in private and asked him to set a better example. Can you believe this? <laughs> I know Ajahn Sumedho, I, I believe it. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> he expected an, an intense reaction, but instead Ajahn Chah looked at him gently and said, well, I'm very grateful to you, Sumedho, for bringing up these things to me. I'll really consider what you've said and see what can be done. But also, you should bear in mind that perhaps it's a good thing that I'm not perfect. Otherwise, you might be looking for the Buddha somewhere outside your own mind. So working with doubt. Um, so just to realize that all of the hindrances to some degree or other rely on thinking, right? And rely on the thinking mind. And, um, and I've really seen in my own practice how thinking that goes unobserved can really lead me to hell, can really provoke all kinds of craving, all kinds of rage, you know. So to really attend to the thinking and and not not let it be the royalty in the room, right? You know, we should not be bowing to our thoughts. You know, like like we, thoughts need their proper place. We we use thoughts are powerful, and we need to use them well. We use concepts skillfully, strategically, you know. But but we really need to work with our awareness around thinking. Just run amok. <clears throat> what thoughts isolate us and disconnect us from anything real in the moment? And and even in those in, even in those moments when we've you know been in quicksand, when we've been down the rabbit hole, whatever. You know, um, the moment we see it, the moment we remember, you know, the moment we notice what's happening, the landscape can shift. And again, we can be the mind, we can be awareness observing the activity of doubt, the activity of fear, whatever it is. In that moment of noticing, and just let the landscape shift. So that's one thing. Pay attention to how thoughts make doubt, you know. Um, and we can, we can also learn to listen. We, we can learn to listen really well to our bodies and to our minds, you know. And, and we get cooked in all these different ways. Cooked in a good sense, like wisdom can grow from deep listening, wordlessly, right? Wordlessly. I think about this in terms of, um, you know, really a, a big challenge I had uh, in my, you know, young life as a, you know, trying to be, aspiring to be a professional dancer and, and being so burdened with fear, like just fear of performing, fear of even being in the studio, self-consciousness in the classroom. And, and it really, it really... Um, 
just felt like a plague in my in my life and and I did everything I could to work with it. I saw a psychologist, a sports psychologist, really working with my thinking, really uh, you know this long infinite battle and and uh, one time, you know, in performance, in a professional performance, you know, I, I just the 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 um, hindrance of doubt got so big that I had a meltdown. I just forgot where I was, like in that black room. <laughs> I didn't know whether to move my body this way or this way. It was sort of it was like that. It was horrifying, but it it so got my attention. There was so much power in it like and it was like what is this you know and so instead of like demanding that my mind be a certain way I got interested in what my mind was got really interested and that's what kind of got me sitting it got me to the cushion just like the instinct the intuition was just be still just stop stop this crazy battle which isn't taking you anywhere useful, you know. And it was, it was that practice. It was just, and and I was a real skeptic. I mean, gurus, you know, uh, get me away. But, you know, the instruction to watch my breath, watch the in-breath, watch the out-breath, and stay connected. I could, I could believe in that. <coughs> that's trustworthy, that's real, that's here. I'm not being asked to conjure anything. You know, so that was my start. I'll accept that. You know, and I did that wholeheartedly, and that was just a, a whole doorway into a, a different way of being. This is Stephen Levine's words. He says, "As long as there is any part of ourself we're not accepting, we're not going to let go of hell and penetrate through all the phenomenon that hypnotize us with pleasure and pain." Letting, letting doubt in in its own way, you know, as an object of our awareness. And we can know in that moment, you know, doubt is an unwholesome hindrance, right? But the awareness is wholesome. So the wholesome awareness is meeting an unwholesome object of awareness. And we can know the activity of this doubt. I just want to I just want to do a little experiment with you just for a moment about turning to the knowing mind and so just however you're seated um, just bring your attention to just the sensations in the palms of your hands so using these sensations as our uh, as our object that we're listening to that we're feeling you know of course we can Maybe feel some warmth. Maybe there's, you know, a little movement. Varying kinds of pressure. So we can really attend to the qualities of the object in the hand. But then we can also, like, what's knowing the what's knowing the sensations? 
Right? The sensations aren't knowing anything. The mind is knowing the sensations. Right? And so when we look at the mind knowing the sensations, you know, what is the nature of this knowing mind? First of all, we can't really turn it off, right? Can't turn it off. You know, does it have an age? Does it have a gender? Like, these are are good questions. Does it have a center? We can keep bringing our attention to the knowing mind. What is this knowing mind? Feel the nature of the object and the nature of the mind to know it. And then another strategy, you know, when we're lost in doubt, is return to the body, and even more specifically, just return to the breath. The Buddha said, knowing the breath is a source of confidence. That really struck me when I heard that. Knowing the breath, you know, is a condition for confidence to arise in the mind. And it's because we're connecting with something real in the moment. We're connecting with life versus our ideas about life. And when we're, you know, Mark talked about this so beautifully last night, you know, when we're intimate with life, there's not really a space for doubt. You know, there's not really a space for that. And we feel the wholesomeness of that intimacy. just let's just end with a, a just a two or three minute just little meditation around doubt okay let's just do that briefly so just be comfortable um, just be comfortable and relax your body relax your mind See if you can bring to mind some kind of doubt that is showing up in your practice. A self-doubt, a doubt about the teachings, whatever it is. Just see if you can identify something that's been at play in the practice. just in a kind of courageous way just invite it in kind of show itself <laughs> so that we can just see it clearly what, what is it what are the words that it says does it have a texture
there's strong feelings connected with it, there might be some activity in the body in relationship. investigating a little is it unpleasant or pleasant are you the main actor what are the stories or memories that kick in with this particular (coughs) other pattern of doubt You can hear the words, feel the tone, feel the body, but see if you can reside in some way in in space, in the space around it, instead of inside the content. Seeing it as an energetic pattern, as an activity that arises lawfully. feel maybe a subtle joy in just this kind of soft opening to maybe what we haven't seen before, kind of welcoming in.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.